or another. Um, there can be a healthy sort of boasting, and, and uh, that's in Scripture too. Uh, but when it isn't quite right, we're, we're good at hiding it. Um, I've talked about this before. It's kind of funny. You guys have heard of humble brags, right? Um, I think we're really good at humble brags. A humble brag is where you come across as humble, but you're really bragging. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you might find on the internet, someone would say, I'm truly humbled that one million people would want to follow my Instagram account. Um, or you'll see, you know, felt so good to help a, help a homeless person today. I don't deserve the privilege of helping others, but I learned so much from them. And, like, kind of humble, but I guess you're trying to tell us that you're a really good person and you help people. Um, can't believe how smart my kids are. They, they all got into Ivy League schools. It must be my better half. Um, or uh, this one, actually, I found so embarrassed that a guy asked me out when I was wearing sweats and a baseball cap without any makeup. So, um, and then this one, we can do ourselves maybe. I don't know why so many people love our church so much. We're just nobody's following Jesus. Um, it sounds humble, but I don't know. So, have you ever humble bragged? Um, no? Well, then you can just tune out and put in your earbuds and listen to something else. Today we're going to learn about how God undermines our boasting, our wrong sort of boasting, um, and how actually the gospel, the good news, this amazing truth of righteousness through faith alone undermines, undermines boasting and ch changes how we boast. So we're going to dig into Romans chapter 3 verses 27 to 31. We'll project it, uh, but I strongly encourage you to have it in front of you. We, have the, we still have extras of the Romans journals. Those are for you to keep and to write in, to take notes uh, and, and, or doodle if that helps you remember what's there. Some people have an artistic gift and that's going to help. So please uh, have the word in your lap if at all possible. I think it's good to, to get acquainted to the, the thing in your hands, not just what's on the overhead. But let me pray because we need God's help. and We need him to help us understand his word. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's just amazing. I pray we'd never take it for granted that the words of the creator himself, the eternal, infinite God, have been given to us. And that you want us to know about you. We, you want us to know about who you are and what you're like and what you've done. And you want us to, to benefit from that. So thank you so much. I pray you'd grant us faith right now to believe and receive your word. I pray you'd grant me, Lord, grace to, to accurately teach and appropriately proclaim the truths that are here. Oh God, help us, because you're so good and so worthy, and there's so much more to understand, and we need you. So be here with us, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we engage your word today, we ask in Christ's name, amen. All right, so that end of chapter 3, following on from last week, Paul says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. 
On the contrary, we uphold the law. God's word from Romans chapter 3. We're slowing down a little bit as we're here in these key sections of Romans. Uh, This is probably one of the most important sections of Scripture because it it is the apex of the truth about Jesus. All of Scripture ultimately points to Jesus or from Jesus. And our passage today and the one uh, from last week are kind of the apex of truth about Christ. And so that's why we're slowing down a little bit. We won't always go three, three verses at a time. Sometimes we'll take bigger chunks. But we're slowing down to concentrate on what's here and what's so important. So really grateful last week, Brendan did a great job explaining the righteousness of God, that it is through the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. So that's a big word, a new word, but a precise word that's important to understand. And I I hope myself to remember for a long time uh, how he brought that out. He compared it, remember, to uh, sacrifices that would have been done to that Zeus snake god. Um, I didn't know where he was going with that at first, but it it ended up being really helpful. So different. Uh, The propitiation of God is so different. Uh, First, it's not for capricious anger. It's for holy, just wrath. Second, it's not the human putting forth the sacrifice. It's God himself putting forth his own son, God the Son, as the sacrifice. And thirdly, it's not something that you need to keep on giving. You have to keep on worrying. Oh no, is he going to be okay today? Do I need to do another sacrifice? It's once for all. Such great news, amazing news, and what it means for us in our being counted righteous in Christ through this sacrifice. So this week I want to focus on this next paragraph and, and highlight the idea that righteousness is received through faith alone. The righteousness of God is by faith alone. And this righteousness silences all boasting. It saves all peoples. And it satisfies the law. It silences all boasting. It saves all peoples. And it satisfies the law. This righteousness by faith alone. So Paul starts in verse 27. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? He uses the word then, right? And that's a connective word. If then, we, we say, right? If, if this happens, then this happens. It's an implication sort of connective word. Um, and so there is a connection here, verse 27, to what's been said previously. Uh, and verse 26, just to back up, verse 26, it says, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting, Paul says. So the connection is immediately in that whole section, but especially that immediate verse. Speaking of God, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It doesn't always serve in English. We have different words for the same sort of root word in, in the Greek for righteousness. So we use righteous and just. Uh, it's the same word. And justifier is the same thing as being counted or declared righteous. It's the same, the same word and the same meaning here. So when it speaks of God, it says that he might be righteous. And the, the one who counts righteous, makes righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. And, and this point here is Paul is saying, then what becomes of our boasting in light of this truth? In light of this truth, truth that we're justified by faith in Jesus not by something else. It undermines boasting. Uh, It's faith in Jesus. And and so there's no boasting here. That's that's the point. But 
the key to that is understanding that it's faith in Jesus. Jesus is the object of faith. He's the one who's been put forward as this propitiation for our sins. He's the one who's offered up his righteous life. He's the one who fulfilled all righteousness, was uh, entirely righteous in his life, but also fulfilled all righteousness. All the promises, all the types, all the patterns of Scripture, Christ came to fulfill where others have failed. The story of Scripture is, certainly there's wonderful heroes in Scripture, but every single hero in Scripture, but Jesus is a noir hero, right? A dark hero. There's always a dark side. There's always weakness. There's always failure. The very greatest heroes have great weaknesses and sins with them. Um, and, and there's only one hero ultimately in the Bible, and that's Jesus. And Jesus is the one who came and, and all those other failings he fulfilled. He is the Adam who obeyed and fulfilled all righteousness. He is the king who reigned in righteousness, never failed. He is the ultimate prophet. He is the, the perfect Moses. He is the righteous Israel. He is all these things he, in his life he fulfilled all these things and he offered up this righteous life as God in the flesh, infinitely worthy life on the cross for our sins. And so it's really important to understand that, that boasting, what becomes of our boasting is related to the fact that, that Jesus is the object of our faith, not us. Jesus is the one in whom we put our faith. And I think it's really important to understand something that's going on here about Jesus. This is speaking of Jesus and the core truth about Jesus that, that is what leads to us being counted righteous, being counted right and right standing and right relationship with God. It, it is the core truth that leads to that. And what does it say about Jesus here? What is the core truth about Jesus? Notice that it doesn't say we believe in a Jesus who is a good teacher, though he is. It doesn't say we believe in a Jesus who is a good person, though he is. It doesn't say that we believe in Jesus who is the Son of God, though he is. It doesn't say that we believe in Jesus who has come to show us God's love, though he has. We don't believe in a Jesus who has done many miracles, even raising the dead, though that happened and he, he was Lord over all, so he could do any miracle he wanted. We don't believe in a Jesus who taught and demonstrated the kingdom of God, though he did that. These are all important aspects of who Jesus is. But the focal point in this passage is Jesus who died a bloody death on the cross to pay for sins, to rescue sinners. This truth about Jesus is the very core. And we have to be careful to, to remember this. That righteousness, being counted righteous in Jesus, comes through receiving Jesus as the one who died and shed his blood for us on the cross. All those other things are important, but they're not the, the core truth that Paul is highlighting here and Scripture would highlight for us that God himself wants us to know. And it's faith in Jesus. It's faith in Jesus who died on the cross, who is pro this propitiation, this offering to satisfy holy justice, holy wrath. It is faith in Jesus that leads to our righteousness. So what is that? What does it mean by faith in Jesus? It's a necessary part of this justification of being counted righteous. So we should really be careful to understand exactly what it is. Is, is faith a feeling? Is it kind of something like a warm feeling you get when someone talks about Jesus? 
Or is faith uh, just understanding like this happened? Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. And he did these things. He taught and, and he, he claimed to be the Messiah. And, and I believe that's true. And he, he rose again. And, and that's factual information. Is that faith? What is faith? Well, we can go different places. But it's always good to go into our context first. And so if we look back into the section that Brennan taught last week. We see faith mentioned. So verses 25 through 26. I think we have this to project. But you can have it in front of you as well. It speaks of Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood. So it's explaining the truth about Jesus and the, the object of our faith. But then says this, to be received by faith. To be received by faith. Notice that. That's important. God put Jesus forward as this offering and it is to be received by faith. So faith is connected to receiving something. It isn't simply observing something. It isn't passive. It isn't something that leaves us passive just thinking, that's true. Yes, Jesus did die for my sins. That's important to understand that truth. But, but there can be a passive approach to that. Like, I believe that's true. But no receiving so it says this is to be received by faith. We're, we're to engage the truth and receive it personally. We are to interact with this truth and accept it not only as factually true, but true for us. Not only true for us, but desirous, something we want. We want to receive this sacrifice. So we are to orient ourselves to the, his death on the cross as something we gladly receive for us. This is really important. And I just, there's a couple of thoughts I, I have here. Um, I want to first state that I know there's people here with us, and there have been, and Lord willing, always will be, as God uses us as we love and reach out to others, as people feel comfortable, which I think they should. They felt comfortable with Jesus, so they should feel comfortable being with us, but yet don't yet know him. There are going to be people who are processing through this, and that's okay. So I'm not putting pressure on you, undue pressure. But I do want to bring the truth to you as you process through it. I, we want to because we believe there's ultimate truth. And without being pushy, we want, to, we want to move you along, Lord willing. If you don't move along, we're still going to love you, respect you, and welcome you. So, so that's important to understand. But I want to, uh, I guess, identify a little bit because uh, there can be this, as we hear these things, kind of a sitting back, evaluating sort of posture. And I get that. Um, I'm an engineer by training. And if you've interacted with me, you probably have experienced some of that sitting back and processing sort of approach. I'm not, a, uh, not an outward guy like, yeah, let's do this. Boom, I make decisions quickly. I tend to process. I tend to gather data. And then I make decisions. And I think that's part of my training. And that's appropriate. Um, it drives salespeople crazy, I've found, because uh, I, always, like, I always keep my cards close. I can remember interacting with car salesmen and like, you know, Tell me how much you want to spend. I'm like, I don't want to spend anything. Um, and they, they, I don't give them anything to work with. But anyhow, I get that. And in processing these truths, there's a place to, 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 draw, to kind of just evaluate. So please understand that. But I just want to warn you, it shouldn't stay there. After you collect the data, after you see, and after you come to the place of reasonable faith, you realize, you know what? This is plausible. It makes sense. It's not you know, outlandish, it's historical. I have evidence for this, it's plausible. But not only is it plausible, it's desirable. It's a good thing. 
to, and I can see looking at these other Christians that their lives are actually full of some good things. I, I can see it. And so you evaluate all that, but there's a place where you have to receive it. You can't just kind of continue evaluating. There's a place to say, it's not only true, but it's true for me. And I receive it. And I trust you, Jesus. That's the sort of faith of Scripture. So it says it's to be received by faith. And, and, and that's so important to get. Um, I think that there's a lot of Christianity that is out there, and it's kind of how I grew up, that it doesn't have that component. I grew up, and I could have affirmed all, all the truths. Um, I knew, and I still know, the Nicene Creed. I had it memorized. I grew up, I said it every Sunday. And, and so that's all truth. That's fact. That's real. That's the gospel. Um, even if you had asked me, did Jesus die for, why did Jesus die? I would have said he would have died for, he died for my sins. But I didn't get it. It was information. And I had never received it for myself. And, and, and that's important to understand. We, you can actually have essentially a Christless Christianity. Because you have the facts, you know the truth, but you have not received it. The propitiation in his blood is to be received by faith personally. And that's what it's saying here. And also, really important, I've kind of already said this, but it's verse 26. It says, the one that he is the one who is the justifier of the one who has faith in, end of 26, in who? Jesus. It's not faith alone, like without Jesus. It's not faith in faith. It's just not being a kind of believing sort of person, a positive person. That's not what it's saying here. There's a, a focus of the face, of faith. There's a, an object of the faith here. It's Jesus and who he is. It's Jesus in particular as the crucified and risen one. The one who died for our sins, who offered himself for our sins. It's faith in that Jesus. There's an object to our faith. So, those two things, just to highlight. Faith is, involves believing, assenting something to be true, but receiving it. And the thing that is true ultimately is Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Jesus as God in the flesh, dying for our sins, rising again. It's faith in Jesus. That is how we are justified, declared righteous. So it is faith alone, through faith alone. There's a not, not another vehicle through which you receive that. It's through simple faith, believing and receiving and responding. It is, it is through faith alone, but there's an object, there's, a, there's an aspect that's important to understand. And so Paul is saying that um, this faith, this experience excludes boasting. It excludes boasting. It, it, it nullifies boasting. It destroys boasting. It undermines boasting. Self-boasting, that, that is. Um, there's a place elsewhere in Scripture that talks about boasting in the Lord. But it excludes boasting. And it says, Paul goes uh, in, into a dialogue here, right? He, he's, he's posing questions and he's answering questions here. And he says, uh, it exclude, is it excluded by what kind of law? By, by a law of works? No, by the law of faith. So, important to kind of think through what is he saying there. So, it's excluded by, not by a law of works, but by the law of faith. So, what does it mean, the law of works, the law of faith? Because in Scripture, the law uh, often, usually, means the, the rules of God. 
the, the moral law, the moral rules of God, the principles, the truths, and in particular distilled in the Ten Commandments, and even more further distilled into the two greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. That's the des descriptive of the character of God and what is to be the character and the conduct of his people. That's the law. But is that what is meant here? Is there, are there two different laws? Is there a law of faith somewhere? Is that the second part of the Ten Commandments and the law of works? Is, what, what is, what's the law of works? What's the law of faith? Well, I think the best way to understand it is Paul's using law here not to mean the law of God, but the principle. Kind of like how we talk about the law of gravity, right? The law of gravity is, is the principle of gravity. It's not a moral thing. Um, it's just, you know, what goes up must come down. That's the law of gravity. It works this way. It's how things work. And that's what Paul is saying here. And he, he does, uh, he uses this word similarly else, uh, elsewhere, in particular in Romans. So if you look in Romans uh, chapter se uh, 7, he uses it a couple, a few times. And then especially uh, chapter 8 verse 2. So project that verse, please. Uh, it's a helpful verse to see, to understand what he's meaning by law of works, law of faith. And here he says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So he's using this similarly here. And he means the principle, the, the truth the, of the spirit of life and, and redemption through the spirit versus the principle of sin and death. He doesn't mean law, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, but the principle. I think that's the best way to understand what he's saying in our passage. And so he's saying that the boasting is excluded by what kind of principle? What basis? How does it happen? And he says, by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. The law of works, the principle of works is this. If you do this, you get this. That's what the principle of works is. If you do X, you get Y. In particular, if you're good enough, you get a reward. If you're bad, you get consequences, punishment. And the law is good. Because if you look through the law of God, it says wonderful things, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course that's the right thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others as you love yourself. Of course that's right. We, we must do that. The law is good. And, and there's blessing that comes with that. There's harmony. There's peace. There's, there's a right relationship with God. But the problem with the law is not the law. The problem with the law is us. And so when we put ourselves in the equation, it leads to trouble because we can't do X and get Y. Because we're broken. Our relationship with God is broken. Humanity lives in this broken place. We're not what we ought to be. And we know it. But we also know what we ought to be. We know that there's something different here. We're not mere animals. We are created in the image of God. There's right and wrong. And it should be a lot better than it is. And why do I do the things that I do? Why can't I do what's right? There's a brokenness in us so that the law of works will fail us. And Paul offers something different. The law of faith. It works so differently. Because the law of faith doesn't look to ourselves to do X and get Y. It looks outside of ourselves. It puts our hope not in our own efforts, but actually in someone else's efforts. There's still effort involved here, but it's not our effort. It's the righteous one. 
Jesus, his effort, what he did, his faithfulness, and his sacrifice for us. And the law of faith puts our hope in him entirely, not in our works. Now, works matter. Works are important. We're going to get into that. But that's not the focal point, and that's not the means by which you are counted righteous. It never will be. It is excluded. For we hold that one is justified by faith, Paul says in verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Apart from works of the law. Apart from works of the law. Your justification, your righteousness is apart from the works of the law. From that principle, from doing X to get Y. Entirely, entirely, entirely. Hear that. It's very clear here. It's the law of faith. That's what excludes boasting, of course. Because the focus is not on us, it's on someone else. It's on Jesus. We boast in him, the righteous one, who gave himself for us. Amazing truth. That he would so love us and so humble himself to give himself for us. So how does this work? How, how, how does it connect? Well, maybe an illustration will, will help. And excuse me if you're not a football fan. I probably do too many football illustrations. But anyhow, I'm going for it. Imagine that you're, uh, that, well, that the New England Patriots win their first playoff game. Surprise. And then they're next. And then they're next. And I don't know how many they have, but they end up going to the Super Bowl. And let's see, they're in the Super Bowl against the NFC team. And so let's say, uh, this will make some people happy here. The Dallas Cowboys are there with them. Um, and say you wanted to go. And you wanted to buy tickets. How much do tickets cost? Anyone know? Super Bowl tickets? I looked it up, actually. Take a guess. Yeah, they, they depend on when you get them. You can get them ahead of time for maybe 4000 But if, it, if, like now, maybe... They are anywhere from $5,000 to $40,000. So imagine you want to go to the game, and imagine you get a bonus at work because you, you are the employee of the year at work. You're the best employee, and you get a bonus and two tickets to the Super Bowl. And you are really excited, and you're probably going to humble brag about that one, right? I'm so humbled to receive two free tickets to the Super Bowl for being the best employee of the month. I can't believe they picked me. Right? So think of that scenario. Now let's flip it. There's lots of boasting in that one. Imagine you're not the person who gets the free Super Bowl tickets. You're not the employee who's the employee of the year. It's your friend, kind of your friend. And that friend knows you love football. And that friend loves football as, as much as you do even more. But that friend's an amazing person. And they say, here, I want you to have the tickets. Now imagine also that you had just been gossiping about that friend and backstabbed them, and they knew it. And they said, hey, forget about the backstabbing. All's forgiven. Enjoy yourself. Doesn't that undermine your boasting? Your humble bragging? You're not gonna, what are you going to say about yourself? Other than, I was a big jerk, and this guy still did this for me. I can't believe it. You're going to boast in your friends. It's through that friend's actions, not yours. 
And that's how it undermines boasting. That's what Paul's saying. This law of faith says it's entirely of Jesus, not me. I have nothing in this to boast about. It undermines boasting. That's what Paul is getting at here in this passage. Salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Righteousness by grace alone, a free gift of Jesus' sacrifice through faith alone undermines our boasting in ourselves. Paul goes on to answer other questions, and I just think that the point here is that we are to be people who are marked by profound humility and gratitude because someone else has paid the price. You are at the game not because of your efforts, but in spite of your efforts. You are at the game because of someone else's efforts. Their perfect life, their love, their sacrifice, their faithfulness. And so there's no room for self-boasting, self-promotion, being proud of our, of our works, earning something. But there's lots of room for humility and gratitude and joy that his work is finished and we are welcomed to the family, to the, to the Super Bowl of Super Bowls because of him. So let us be a people full of gratitude and humility and freedom and joy in this reality. So next, and I'll go a little faster here, so don't worry. Um, salvation by faith alone leads to the saving of all people. There's, there's no distinction in faith alone. And so Paul says, or is God, he continues to answer objections, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So what Paul's saying here is that faith alone makes no distinction of different peoples and different histories and different ethnic groups. Is God the God of Jews only? And in other words, is God going to follow in line with a, a contemporary Jewish understanding of, at that time of, of their history and how they earned salvation? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Is he not the God over all peoples? Is he not the God over all creation? God is not the God of a particular ethnic people and he, only, but he, and he does not treat one group different than another group. He's the God over all. He doesn't create for these people, it's going to be a system of works. For these people, it's by faith. No. God is one. He's not confused. He doesn't do things differently with different people at different times. There are not different dispensations of how we're counted righteous. It's only and always ever been since the fall by grace alone through faith alone for all people. That's what he's getting at. He's the God of all, and this truth is for all. He's not the God of the Jewish people, per se, or the Gentile people. He's not an American God. He's not a white or black God. He's not a God for women, not men, or men, not women. He's not an English-speaking God. He's not a Western God. He is God over all. He is God alone. And this truth of righteousness by grace through faith alone is for all people. He is one. So no matter where you are, what you're part of, what your background is, no matter what stream of Christianity that you've come from, be it Protestant or Catholic or Orthodox, Baptist or Anglican, no matter what, there is only one truth, there is only one way to be counted righteous and accepted by God. It's by Christ alone, the grace of God in Christ alone, through faith alone for all. Because this is God's way of justifying Sinners and rescuing people. So put 
no confidence anywhere else but in God and his truth. Put no confidence in your heritage, the ceremonies, your affiliations, even your creed. As important as those things might be, it's Christ alone, his death on the cross for your sins. And it's receiving that death through faith that you're counted righteous. And it's a free gift. You can contrast that with all sorts of other systems that are out there. And if you look at the other worldview systems, they pretty much are all systems of the law of works. If you do X, you get Y. So all the alternatives would say something else about doing something, earning something. So just, and I don't have time to get into the different alternatives, but say Buddhism. Buddhism, you get to the place of salvation and justification by your own efforts, by meditation, by purging yourself of, of desire and selfishness, and somehow you tried enough times and have enough uh, retries that you get it done right. That's the idea there. Islam, the virtuous are those who follow the, the five pillars and believe in the uh, multiple aspects. And they're the ones who get chosen. So they'd have to do this. And the modern post-Christian deistic humanism is the same sort of thing. It's a system of merit. If you can be a respectful and tolerant and affirming person, you know, you're somehow, you know, you're going to be honored. And, you, and we don't know where you're going to go, but you're going to go somewhere and your, your memory's going to linger. Or you're going to be in some sort of spiritual heaven. That's kind of the modern thing. All these systems are systems of merit. And yet God's system is a system of grace through faith alone for all people. So be unapologetic about this. Even though all these worldviews oppose it, certainly be polite, but understand they're not true. And I don't say that because of prejudice or bias. It, it's what's here. It's what's been revealed. It's what's affirmed by the death and resurrection of Christ. It's God's way. It's his system of counting people righteous and saving them by grace alone, through faith alone. So be unapologetic with others because it's not your deal. It's God's deal. And he is one and this is how he does it. Finally, there is no contradiction in faith alone. It supports the law. It satisfies the law. Paul says in verse 31, Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. It's a natural question to think that we must somehow overthrow the law by this thing. Because if you get a get out of jail free card, this faith thing, then who cares about the law, right? It doesn't matter. If I can just believe, you know, it doesn't matter what I do. That's the objection. That's the thinking. And Paul poses that question and says, by no means. Uh, another way to say that is, nope, never's going to happen. Nope, never will happen. On the contrary, Paul says, we uphold the law. So it's not just that like, you know, well, it doesn't quite overthrow it. It, it kind of diminishes it. No, he doesn't say it diminishes the law. He says, we uphold the law. We validate the law. We fulfill the law. We satisfy the law. Now, the law of God is really important. The law of God is really his character and his goodness and glory. And certainly anything that overthrew that would, would be wrong and evil. And it's throughout scripture, it's an understanding concern to hear this message of being counted righteous through faith alone. In other words, you don't do anything but receive through faith it for yourself. You believe it, you receive it, you turn away from trusting other things and you receive this and, you, and in that is, I want this, I want to follow him, I'm sorry for my sins. That's all implied in genuine faith. But it is, when it comes down to it, you believing and receiving something outside yourself entirely. And so it's natural to think, well, won't this undermine 
the, the things God tells us to do, the good things, the law of God. And isn't scripture full of the law, right? Anyone know how many commandments in the Old Testament? 613. Anyone know how many in the New Testament? Depending on how you count them, over a thousand. So the law of God is important and it gets accentuated in the New Testament. And so it's natural to think, what's going on here then? If, if it's through faith alone, doesn't this undermine the law? And that's actually what happened in the Reformation. As the word of God was established as a, the authority for truth and the gospel was clarified, the reformers said these sorts of things, that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And just what Paul says. And, and the powerful Western church, the Roman Catholic church, that was over the, the, the reformers in their countries, opposed it and refuted it. And I think they did it in part because they were concerned about lawlessness. They thought, you know what, this could go really bad. Because people start saying, it doesn't matter what I do, I just believe, you know, and I'm okay. So I can go out and do anything, right? I get a get-out-of-jail card, so I might as well go rob banks. That's, that's probably part of what was motivating them. But the sad part in refuting it is they, they rejected what it says here. Because Paul says, verse 31, very clearly, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And, and they failed to see that salvation, righteousness through faith alone actually upholds the law, doesn't undermine it. And so Paul's going to take time. He, he makes that emphatically clear. This is the Apostle Paul making this emphatically clear. And so this is the authority they should have stood on, not their own concerns. But Paul is already and will continue to explain how this works itself out. So let me briefly do that, very briefly. Paul's already talked about how the law, how faith upholds the law. Because he's been talking up until this section about the law and how the law condemns us, right? The law is good, but it shows us our sinfulness, how we've fallen short. And, and he says in chapter 3, verse 19 through 20, um, for by works of the law, no human will be, being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So no one is going to be justified. We, we see our sin through the law. And so the first way that faith upholds the law is the law acting as the perfect mirror. It shows us our, our sin. It shows us uh, the truth. And, and the, the, uh, the New Testament intensifies the focus and clarity of that mirror, by the way. The New Testament laws take the Old Testament laws and show the fullness of it. And, and I can show you multiple examples, but just think briefly. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love. It doesn't really describe too much of love there. So you could actually kind of, like, I love God. I love others. Well, why don't you read 1 Corinthians 13 and let's see if you love. Because that gets more into depth of the love. So love is patient and kind does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Oh boy, I'm in trouble on that one. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love looks like. And so the law of God gets refined and clarified and is more intense in the New Testament. And it's meant to focus, it's meant to be... Uh, function as a mirror as we look at that and we say, oh no, I don't do that. 
And I didn't do that the other day and even this morning. And even now at times, I'm not doing this. It acts as a mirror. How's that connected to faith? Well, that functions for us. It's meant to function for all people, people who don't yet know Christ. And especially for the Christian, if you know Christ, it's meant to be a mirror so that you would look at yourself. What do you do when you look in the mirror and your face is dirty? You go, oh, interesting, my face is dirty. And you walk away. No, you clean your face. So metaphorically, how do we clean our face? We run to the cross and know that our sins are forgiven entirely. And Christ gives us power to change. That's how the law functions. And so it, it, faith with the law, in that case, faith fulfills that, fulfills the law. Its function is to drive us to faith, to Jesus. Secondly, faith focuses us on the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. And so there's a sense of it fulfilling, and Paul talks about this in, in Romans, that Jesus is the focal point. Now, if you, if you understand the law, you know that it requires perfect obedience. And you know that it requires punishment for disobedience. And none of us have perfectly obeyed, and none of us can ever perfectly pay for our disobedience. But Jesus has on both accounts. He's perfectly obeyed, and he's perfectly paid. And so Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. God perfectly punished sin in Christ. He fulfilled that aspect of the law. And then Romans 5.19 the other side, for as by the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. He fulfilled the law. He was perfect, even to the point of going to the cross and dying in the place of others. He fulfilled the law. He's the only one. And so faith upholds the law because faith focuses us on the only one who has fulfilled the law, both in its positive requirements and its negative consequences. Thirdly, Try to be quick with this. Via Romans, you're going to find out as we go in chapter 8 especially, we see it, that we fulfill the law as spirit-filled believers. Romans 8, 4, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, it speaks of the work of Christ, saying that in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And then verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And so what Paul's saying here is the third way that faith fulfills the law is it creates new life. There's a new person. There's regeneration. The Spirit of God is now in us, and we can actually fulfill the law. Now, not completely, not perfectly, but genuinely. We can genuinely love God and love others in the ways that we're called to by the power of the Spirit. And the New Testament is full of the call to this. And it's relentless in the call to holiness. But it's an entirely different approach because through faith we're already counted righteous. We're already righteous. We're already safe. We're already secure. We're already accepted even in our imperfections. And so through faith we're looking to Jesus, not ourselves. And so when we look at the law, there's a totally different way to look at it. Because we're, we are, we're forgiven. We're counted righteous. We're not doing this to earn heaven. We're not doing this in fear that somehow we'll get kicked out of the family. We're secure in Jesus. 
And in that place now, we can freely and we should zealously run after holiness. Run after obedience. We should look at the law of God and look at the ways Jesus taught and the things he said and be like, this is glorious. Now it's way beyond me. I'm a mess. I need help, but I want this. I want what he says. And, and, and Jesus comes with his teaching and the whole New Testament comes to intensify the law. To call us to, to a holiness and a love that's way beyond what we might see at the, at the initial level. I just think of Sermon on the Mount. You can just go there, chapter 5, and you'll see four times Jesus says, You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. He's saying, you've heard it said. You've read the law. You've heard these things. You've, you've heard not to murder. But I tell you, don't be angry. Don't insult and degrade others because that's the same thing. Uh, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't even desire someone that's not yours. Not, not to lust. You've heard it said, you should love your neighbor. I say, love your enemies. And, and it goes on and on that there's this intensity in holiness and love and the fullness that we should run after. And we should be able to admit, you know what? I'm a mess though, too, to be honest. Because the cross has already said it. I, I love uh, what Tim Keller, I'm jumping ahead. Uh, sorry, projection guys. I'm jumping ahead. The end, last quote, um, Tim Keller. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the gospel. Because our sin was so serious, God himself in the flesh had to die for you. There's nothing that will condemn you more, ever. If God himself had to die to rescue you, you're pretty bad. I'm pretty bad. Yet, I'm so loved, you're so loved, that he would do that for us. And this truth of the gospel, these two things together shape us and change us. It makes us people who can be brutally honest with one another with ourselves and our weaknesses, and yet still feel safe and secure. And be eager to change and to grow. And so, in conclusion, let me just ask a couple of questions by way of application. Are you relying on your own works for salvation? Or someone else. And you might say, well, of course, I'm relying on someone else. But let me ask a question. Is your sense of well-being controlled by your performance or by the reality of Christ crucified and risen? Because if your well-being goes up and down with your performance, you're probably basing your functional sense of salvation on works instead of Jesus. And let me challenge you. Put your confidence in Him alone. And know the fullness of your forgiveness and your safety in Him and the satisfaction of His blood shed for you. Jerry Bridges says, and this is a quote you can put up, second to last quote, Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Nor are your best days ever so good that you are beyond the need of it. When we get that, we can be honest and we can learn to have a stability that's in Him, not our performance. Sure, we want to do better. But we're forgiven. We're loved. We're free. Second, by way of application, are you vigorously pursuing greater obedience to God's law 
or are you taking it easy? When you live by faith alone, you're free from a treadmill of trying to earn in that whole system. And you should know the depth of God's love for you. And it's that power of grace, that power of acceptance, that power of love of Him in us should compel us, propel us to want to be more and more like Him, to love Him more, to love others more, to dig into the Word of God, to look at the Sermon on the Mount, to look at 1 Corinthians 13 and examine our own hearts and say, oh Lord, help me, I want more. And to do that together. These are ways that the law, that, the, that salvation through faith alone fulfills the law. It does it in a glorious way. So as the band comes up and Pastor Toby will transition us, let's just take a minute and think of these truths. I know I've covered a lot of truths, but in particular, maybe these two think, concluding thoughts. Take a minute to think about that, pray to the Lord, and ask Him for help, and then we'll transition to communion.